In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou most women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, thrice admirable. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Always pleased to join you here at Schoenstatt, so thank you for extending the invitation to me. There were several topics that were suggested to me for this talk, but I think the two earliest ones were the best, and those are suffering and mortification, especially since Lent is almost here. I'll start with what we know, that suffering is a mystery, because what does it mean to suffer? Why does suffering exist? Why suffer in the first place? Why does suffering have to be difficult? Why can't I suffer in the way that I want to suffer? Many people try to apply their own thoughts to how life should be, and they don't understand how God made it. But at the end of the day, the question, why suffering, is answered only by the fact that God allows it for a greater good to come about. Meaning that we have to have quite a bit of trust in God at all times, but especially when we're trying to handle a situation, a trial, that makes us doubt. Doubt God, doubt our abilities, doubt possibilities, and tempt us to back down. Whenever I don't know what to make of something, I usually turn to the etymology or where a word comes from, because finding out the roots of a word gives you the answer to what it means and how it was used. Suffering can be translated from the Latin passio, meaning passion, but a more helpful translation that isn't so close to the original is that passio means an undergoing, that Jesus' passion refers to his undergoing, suffering and death for our sins. It was something he experienced, something he endured. That means suffering is related to the virtue of fortitude or the endurance of affliction. The principal act of fortitude is endurance, that is to stand immovable in the midst of dangers rather than attack them. And that's from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, the Summa Theologica, the Secunda Secunde, question 123, article 6. That means fortitude is not about bravery compelling a person to act, but it's about bravery compelling a person to stand strong to undergo some sort of suffering or affliction or trial. Supernatural fortitude allows the person to endure more than they should naturally be able to. Uh, to for natural endurance, think of kind of the, the opera singer holding a glass in her hand and she sings as high as she can and as loud as she can. And then when that glass hits its resonance frequency, the glass shatters, right? Because its, uh, it's uh, structure is compromised and it can't take that strain anymore. Nikolai Tesla did similar, uh, similar experience with resonance frequency, and he made a small machine that you could attach to a structure and gave little taps, not even enough to hurt a baby. But once that wave, that little tap, the wave went to the end of the object and came back, the little uh, oscillator would tap again, but it would, add, uh, it would add its energy to that tap. So each time it went back and forth, it would be a little bit more and a little bit more. So when Tesla actually attached to his apartment building, by the end of the week, the, the building was starting to sway back and forth because it was hitting that resonance frequency and it's reaching its natural limits. And so there are both natural and lim there are natural limits on material objects. But as people, you know, we have our natural limits and we have supernatural limits as well. With supernatural virtue, the person can endure all things for Christ and the sake of the gospel. He can endure more than what he would naturally be able to. 
The greatest saints said that they would rather shed their blood than willingly commit just one venial sin. All the martyrs would rather die than deny their Lord and compromise the truth. We are united with Christ's passion by our own passion. We are strengthened with his strength. We become one with Christ in our suffering. We are united by the virtues of faith, hope, and fortitude when we suffer well and we make an offering of it. All the virtues, they're all connected. If a man possesses one, he technically possesses all of them. However, the inverse is not true. Vices or habitual sins, they're never connected. One might lead to another, but if a man possesses one vice, he only possesses one vice. This is because sin is disjointed, it disconnects, it isolates. Whereas God himself is about making connections. Goodness is always connected to goodness. You can think that where goodness is, there is connectedness, since not one good thing can happen without God. God is acting in every good thing. And even in evil things, God's divine providence is at work. He's setting up a way to make that crooked way straight. Virtue must be given by God, and it is either immediately acquired by God's direct action, by infusing it into the person, or indirectly, as the person puts into practice good actions and builds right habits. When someone suffers, there's a trial or a challenge that threatens them in some way. And he needs the theological virtues, that faith, hope, and charity, but he also needs the moral virtue of fortitude. Faith is first truth, that is God speaking to us. It is our job to listen and to believe when we hear him. Without faith, we can fall into disbelief, and we can destructively question God's ways. It's okay to question his ways to find out why he's doing and how he's acting, but it's not okay to try to question his faith to tear it down. Suffering can tempt people to lose their belief that God even exists. Hope is the expectation of things not yet possessed. And as a theological virtue, it's the expectation that one day we will possess God himself as our eternal reward. Without hope, we can doubt God's divine providence over creation and his, his helping hand in everything that happens. We can think that our trials will never end or that they're going to be too much for us to bear. And so we can despair. Charity is the form of our, all the virtues. Every action that we do, every human action, must be done with love. And that love of God then transforms those human actions into the highest actions we're capable of. Without love, we would be unwilling to accept crosses from the Lord or any other good gifts he wishes to bestow upon us. We would also be unwilling to act like Christ, to accept his teachings, to follow his example. Fortitude, as we said, is the endurance of affliction. Without it, we cannot stand firm when we're faced with trials. Virtue is about the right action stemming from right habits. Right action always engages the will. Someone might be tempted to think that there are only a few ways to be united with God in this life, and that's where they're wrong. Because God is united to us at our deepest level, our existence itself. He is united to us as our cause. He created us as you know, our maker. He is united to us in our thoughts whenever we dwell on him and talk to him. And he is in our actions as our wills direct the rest of our being towards ultimate happiness, God himself. God is united to us by the Eucharist in the most drastic way, where we're actually grafted onto his mystical body. Being human, we're rational animals, which means that we're capable of spiritually moving either toward 
or away from God. That means that virtue is the most excellent way we can use our rationality when we use it to get closer to God and walk in his ways. We need to motivate both the loftiest and the lowest parts of our being to actually be virtuous, which means that we need to make our movement toward God a complete movement, our entire selves. It's not enough to just start doing the right thing, but to still have these evil inclinations, you know, if you're still tempted by a sin. We have to work towards not being tempted by that sin, to kind of thwarting ourselves before we can do something wrong. And then, then you start to build virtue to do the right thing easily and, and, and as often as you can. To suffer well is to become one with God, because suffering on its own is sort of pointless. It doesn't accomplish anything when it merely happens. But when you offer up your suffering to God, when you think about what you are undergoing and you turn your mind to, to what Jesus underwent for you, your hearts become one. Your heart and God's heart are united. That means that all suffering is a chance to pray. All suffering can be transformed into a prayer when you are cognizant of it and you choose, you actively choose to unite your suffering with God. All suffering can be a foretaste of heaven since heaven is being with God. And when you suffer, you are with Jesus when he's on the cross. The fact that suffering is hard has everything to do with love which always requires effort. It's always a choice, a free choice. The greater the suffering, the greater the temptation to think that what you are experiencing is only about you, and you can choose isolation when you don't suffer well. So when a person overcomes those great trials, they're showing greater love for God. And when you think about it that way, it makes perfect sense that when some saints stopped experiencing suffering, they actually worried because they felt that God had forgotten about them. They realized that God was giving them fewer chances to be with him in this life, and that caused them some concern. Hear what the Lord Jesus said to St. Teresa. Do you think, my child, that merit consists in enjoyment? No, it consists in suffering and loving. Look at my life, wholly embittered with afflictions. Be assured, my child, that the more my father loves anyone, the more sufferings he sends him. They are the standard of his love. Look at my wounds. Your torments will never reach so far. It is absurd to suppose that my father favors with his friendship those who are strangers to suffering. St. Teresa then reminds us and gives us a little bit of hope that God never sends a trial alone, but he immediately rewards it with some favor. Recall our Lord's agony in the garden. After he overcame that temptation, he was ministered to by an angel who gave him great consolation in the hour of his passion. When we overcome a trial, the Lord also sends an angel to minister to us, and the Lord can do greater things than those. He can gift us whatever he wants to. He can infuse virtue into us. He can grant us some time of peace. He can give us true inner joy. He can give us some knowledge that we previously lacked. Therefore, the saints on receiving tribulations thanked God for them. St. Louis of France, referring to his captivity in Turkey, said, I rejoice and thank God more for the patience he accorded me in the time of my imprisonment than if he had made me master of the universe. St. Elizabeth, princess of Thuringia, after her husband's death, was banished with her son from the kingdom, and she found herself homeless. She found herself abandoned by everyone that she knew and loved. What she did next was she went to a convent of Franciscans and had the Te Deum sung in thanksgiving to God 
for the single favor of being allowed to suffer for his love. And we see this pattern among the saints. God sends a trial. The saint accepts the trial. God grants the saint the grace to persevere. And then the saint thanks God for the marvelous work he's done in, his, in their soul uh, by so great a God. As St. Paul says, the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come that shall be revealed in us. Knowing this, with what readiness should we embrace our crosses when we know that the sufferings of this transitory life will gain us eternal beatitude? They will be our treasure in heaven. On the other side of the coin, when God sends us great consolations, we should not become puffed up, since this is how God deals with delicate souls who are unable to deal with greater hardships. We should thank God for these too, but we should think of ourselves as being weaker for having received them, our souls needing more of God's care and not yet being ready to vigorously train for heaven. Suffering is also important since we, the church, are the mystical body of Christ. Christ's suffering on the cross is complete, but his suffering has yet to be fulfilled by the members of his mystical body. St. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up those things that are wanting of the sufferings of Christ in my flesh, for his body, which is the church. The person who suffers as part of Christ's mystical body experiences solidarity with Christ the head. We cannot add any value to Christ's suffering, but we can participate in it. This is why the head wished to hold back this infinite merit and, and to not allow us to suffer with him. Uh, he actually allowed us to be joined with him uh, because based on the strength and fellowship of the members with him uh, is that is the amount of unity that God allows with each and every one of us. Through our own personal suffering, we can continue the work of the head in building up the body, the church. Further growth of the body of Christ relies in part upon the personal life and sacrifices of each member. When we suffer well, we are united with Christ by the work we accomplish. Our labors will draw other members into his body and will strengthen the other parts of the body that have not yet reached perfection, including ourselves. Every member who suffers helps to bring the sufferings of Christ to fulfillment, that is to a greater completion than what they already are. What was lacking in the historical sufferings of Christ, we can make up for with the trials that we ourselves undergo in our own lives. The fact that suffering is uncomfortable is so that it reminds us our true home is not in this life. Our true home is in heaven with God. Suffering is hard for just these reasons. If suffering was easy, our prayers would be lighter, and we, wouldn't, and we would say them with less fervor. We would have fewer opportunities to be united with Jesus in this life. And those opportunities would not draw, draw us in as close to the Lord as they otherwise could have done if those trials were difficult. St. Ignatius tells us that there is no wood better suited to increase and maintain the fire of, love, uh, fire of our love for God than the wood of the cross. Jesus told us, take up your cross and follow me. We can think about our Lord's sufferings and we can be united in his passion when we deny ourselves our own self-will and take up our own crosses and burdens with love. We can do that at any time that we suffer. The wood of the true cross should fuel the love for Jesus 
which we have in our hearts. The wood of the true cross brings to our minds Jesus' sufferings and death for each and every one of us. God does not offer salvation to humanity as a whole. He offered it to each human as an individual, an individual whom he saw when he hung upon the cross. When we look upon the Lord's sufferings as an innocent victim experiencing more pain than any of us is capable of, our suffering doesn't really seem so bad when it's compared to Jesus's. How can we compare uh, what a sinner suffers to the totally pure offering of Christ? A side-by-side juxtaposition is impossible. Christ sacrifices infinitely more than anything that we could offer to God. It is why the Mass is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, presented again to God the Father by the Holy Spirit. The Mass is the greatest sacrifice we can give to God, since the Mass is God's sacrifice. It is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and it is completely and totally acceptable to God the Father. God chose to make his sacrifice open to each of us. It's why Mass is so important and why not attending it on Sundays is a mortal sin. Whenever we are presented with suffering, God chooses to open the way to Calvary to us. But remember, only those who pass through Calvary may pass into heaven. There can be no resurrection without first dying on the cross. Just so, there can be no heaven without first suffering. Trials are to our souls as the refining process is to ore. Rocks must be mined and then ore smelted out of them if we're to get metal. And then to get pure metal, it must be heated more and separated from all the impurities that's separated from everything that's not the metal that we want. But the shape of the metal, it has to be destroyed so it can be fully extracted. Trials in life separate our souls from attachment to earthly things. Think of our souls as the ore and think of earthly attachments as the rocks. Not only do trials accomplish this themselves, they also open the soul up to God's further action within them, a purifying their entire selves from the deepest parts of their minds and affections to their outermost parts physically. Trials free the soul to be united with God. An issue with those who do not suffer well is that they become disconnected from one earthly thing to just go to another uh, earthly thing and find comfort in that instead. The whole point of trials and suffering is to detach from everything that is not God so that we can be bound to God and bound to God alone. It was a saying of St. Philip Neri that in this life, there is no purgatory. There is either a heaven or a hell. He that patiently endures suffering enjoys a paradise, while he that does not do so suffers a hell. Those who suffer are bound to God, they are with him, which is a foretaste of heaven. While those who are relaxed and they have it easy in this life, they're isolated from God and they remain alone. Exteriorly, it might not seem like that. Someone might seem like they have many friends, like they have many things to do. But on the inside, when they're not relying on God, they're not relying on the greatest good in the entire world, in the entire universe. And and so they're missing out on uh, what, what really matters in life. Sometimes God wishes that we not just be willing to give up something to him. Sometimes he actually takes. He removes some part of us that we're attached to in both external purgations, like the person who loses uh, a dear object or someone dear to them, or internal purgations where the person is called to 
or God actually detaches something harmful from the person. When done internally in a soul that has advanced in prayer, this internal taking which God does within that person is called the dark night of the soul. The dark night is suffering. It is brought about by God, but it is brought about by him for the best of the person. Similar to how a surgeon has to cut into a person to fix a damaged organ. God sometimes acts as a surgeon for our souls. And so it can hurt and it does hurt. But he goes in and he fixes what's been broken for so long, especially when it's been broken for a long time and something deeply ingrained in us. Uh, that, that's a cause of, of great suffering. The, the deeper these, these wounds and the deeper these uh, inclinations to sin go. But God knows exactly what we need. He trains those souls whom he favors the most with suffering so they might be detached from everything and everyone but God. Our God, he's a jealous God. He wants us to be with him and he doesn't want us to be distracted when we are with him. For us to best benefit from our trials, we must be sure never to grumble or try to avoid them. We must accept them gladly and let them build us up on the way to salvation. The next section is about seeking opportunities to willingly suffer for God so you can become closer to him. What Let reminds us about mortification, which is putting into practice the ascetical life of the church. Mortification is choosing to perform painful practices on oneself or deny oneself lawful goods so the person can detach from worldly desires and only desire God. You have probably heard of many ways to do this, fasting, hard beds, hair shirts, or uh, other sorts of uncomfortable clothing, even going so far as self-flagellation or flogging. Those are all external practices, but those who do them well also make them internal, meaning they should stem from their heart, which seeks to humble itself, it seeks to get rid of pride. It seeks to get rid of its own self-will, which desires things other than God. The word mortification comes from the same word meaning to kill. We're not allowed to kill our bodies or do lasting damage to them. But what we can do is we can make ourselves uncomfortable. We can kill some of that self-will and that rebelliousness within us. That's the goal that we should have in mind when we undertake a mortification. Because what we really aim for is to kill that self-will so that we might instead do what God wills. We might prefer what he prefers instead of what we prefer. With our own fallen, selfish, and needy wills out of the way, we free ourselves to become radically open to God's work and presence within our lives. In the Summa Theologica from the, the, same, uh, the same question, 123, the Secunda Secundae, an end is twofold. It can be proximate or it can be ultimate, as in the end. Proximate ends give something of the agent's likeness into a different object. Fire, for instance, as an agent, gives heat to an object. It makes that object more like itself because fire is heat. The good that can come from that heat is a remote end, like boiling water to make a tea. Our ultimate end is God. And so all of our actions should all point us towards him. They should all be proximate ends. And mortification should be a proximate end. You don't suffer. You don't choose to undergo mortification for the suffering itself. You choose it because you want God, because you want God as your end. Asceticism is an agent whose remote end is to make us more like Christ. That's the point of everything that we do. 
which then aids us in our ultimate end, which is God himself as our happiness. Asceticism is supposed to bring us into greater conformity with the life of Christ. That's what it's all about. That means the point of asceticism for the things that we give up and the the sufferings we choose to, to take on, asceticism is man's salvation. It should make the way clear to union with Christ as the soul begins to be more like Jesus. The endeavor of asceticism is to achieve perfection, the greatest amount of conformity with Christ that a soul can have this side of heaven. St. Thomas states, Perfection is that which lacks nothing. So how might we lack nothing? The answer is by attaining the only thing that matters in this life, which is God. It is necessary for man to practice perfection in the moral sense, that means acting virtuously, doing the right thing, if he wishes to make spiritual advancement in the way of charity, aka the theological virtue of love. We should also understand that since all our human actions must be done with charity as their form, that charity is the greatest of all the virtues, and none of the other virtues, none, no action that we do can be good without love. It cannot lack charity if it is to be in conformity with God. We also need knowledge for our actions to be virtuous, meaning that we cannot mindlessly attain perfection. Perfection, it must be willed, it must be actively sought after, and you must know what you're doing before you begin a practice. Uh, and that practice, you have to know how you're going to attain that end of greater conformity to Christ, which will end in heaven. That is why St. Thomas says, Prudence is the linchpin of all the virtues. Without it, the others cannot exist. Because prudence is choosing the right ends, the right means to an end. And if you don't know what you're doing, then you actually can't. You're not performing human actions. Uh, you're, you're just mindlessly going about life. And the distinction, St. Thomas would say, those are acts of humans, like sneezing, uh, washing your car. It's not, it doesn't build virtue in you. Uh, it just is something that a human does. Whereas human actions, uh, those are things that uh, we do, our moral actions that move us towards God. That's how we exercise that kind of spiritual locomotion as rational animals to get towards the Lord. Our Lord told us that before building a, a tower, a builder must count his money and see whether or not he has enough to finish the project, lest he look foolish and waste whatever money he does have. Prudence chooses the proper means to an end. Regarding virtue, prudence helps us to choose means to become more like Christ. And that means that prudence looks different to different people. If you have something like diabetes, fasting from all food except for water is probably a bad idea, right? Your, your prudence should tell you this because uh, your prudence will prevent you from doing some grave injury to yourself, which when done foolishly uh, will sideline you on the path to spiritual advancement. It won't help you at all. It'll have the opposite effect. It'll be detrimental if you do uh, harmful things that aren't in accord with reason to your body. Whereas others who are in great shape or used to eating less might prefer this method of fasting as it does not damage them. It's, it's, right? it's suffering, it can be painful, but it does no damage. Our bodies are used to going uh, time without food. A danger of the ascetical life is all the choices that a soul has available to it. Someone might, for instance, read a biography of St. Francis of Assisi, and they're so on fire with the example of this saint's life that they decide to sell all they have and give it all to the poor. 
But if that person has children in the household that they need to raise, that they need to provide for, then selling everything is a gravely sinful decision since it will leave your family destitute. Prudence, know your state of life so you can choose mortifications that will not interfere with the obligations you have towards others. Another danger of so many choices is not choosing the right amount of whatever it is. Some people might hear about fasting and say, gee, that seems like it's also a good way to lose weight. I think I'll do that every day except for Sunday. Instead of starting out with what's reasonable, right, the soul goes to what's hardest, thinking that this, they'll advance faster, right? Why run to the finish line when you can, or why walk to the finish line when you can run? And if your feet are, but if your feet are faster than your heart, right, uh, you're going to run out of energy. You're no longer going to be able to run, which is why it's important to know your limits, to test the waters, but especially to learn about some of these practices before beginning, beginning them. Many of the more austere orders in the church, such as the Carthusians, they'll give up eating all meat. And there are many fasting periods that they do during the year, during the penitential seasons, but also extra ones as well. And the human body can't immediately make that shift. It takes time for it to adjust. And the, there's, uh, the prudence of the Carthusians is that there's an adjustment period built into their formation program that they don't start a novice off and just say, you're not eating meat anymore and you're going to fast, do all this fasting with us. They let the, the bodies of the novices adjust to eating less food and different types of food. So you can see how the soul needs caution when seeking greater perfection. Since there is no singular or definite plan to fit everyone, nor is there a different, definite principle regarding the external regulation and mortification there's no sort of bar outside, well, if you're not eating one loaf of, or one slice of bread a day, you're not fasting, right? That's an external regulation and mortification. Uh, it, it can be easy for us if we, uh, for a soul to miss the mark and either overdo it or underdo it. There are two extremes which have both been condemned by the church regarding spiritual advancement. The first regards overdoing it, and that's Pelagianism, or Jansenism and Americanism in two of its later forms. Pelagianism says that we can earn heaven. How does the Pelagian earn heaven, you might ask? I think they do it by lots of severe practices of self-mortification, lots of severe penances that they take upon themselves. Externally, they do too much, and they think they're capable of too much. That's the heresy of Americanism. The reality is we cannot do one good thing without God's help, meaning that no man can earn heaven on his own. I see this unfortunately with some priests who fill up all their time with all sorts of activities and they think that everything that they're doing is ministry. They're missing out on quiet time with God. They focus too much on the active life with programs and busyness which only distract them and the people from God. It's too much about the externals. The second extreme is quietism. Quietism teaches that we don't need to do anything to advance spiritually, that God does it all. Quietism even says that the soul which desires perfection, virtue, or any other individual effort, it's not permissible. However, Christian perfection does not exist in, a, in the state of complete quiescence and passivity. That's why it was condemned. You can see this error in some Protestant sects, but also Catholics of a certain generation. They think that, well, since God can fix everything that he will, fix everything. 
and that all we need to do is sit back. They might go so far as to not care about their moral actions because, well, God will fix those too, right? And we can't completely know what we're doing anyway, so just kind of throw in the towel, let God do, do all of it. But both extremes of false asceticism are just so wrong on so many different levels. They lack temperance, and they cannot regulate the right amount of action or the right internal disposition necessary to grow towards God and become more like Christ. True asceticism is training yourself in the virtue of fortitude. You're engaging your will. You're choosing to endure some hardship for the sake of becoming more like Christ. And you're actually pursuing that hardship, which shows God even more of the person's love. Saints view themselves as having too many goods in this life. They always strive to strip themselves of them uh, now in this life, so they might store up as much treasure in heaven as possible. Saints are never satisfied with loving God less, because their love compels them to do more, to be more like Christ, which then in turn will compel them to do even more. In the spiritual life, avoiding sin is the baseline, and doing good is even better and more advanced than simply not doing evil. We have to suffer, but more specifically, we have to do penance to atone for sins, both those and those around us. Penance is, not, is a specific type of mortification tied to forgiveness of sins and the remittance of temporal punishment. When you go to the sacrament of confession and you're truly sorry for your sins and you confess all your sins, your guilt is forgiven. God no longer holds those sins against you. However, many times the sins carry, you could say, extra baggage with them uh, along uh, with your guilt to be forgiven there's still some residue left over from them, or maybe a wound that has only started to be healed by the sacrament of uh, reconciliation. And we call this extra baggage from sin temporal punishment. It's a leftover debt to God for committing the sin that you have committed. Saints who might have led a sinful earlier life practiced harsh penances to remove this residue and inclination to sin from their lives. Because once you, uh, once you consent to one venial sin, once you do one venial sin, you kind of open yourself up in the future to do that again. Someone, they don't automatically start off as, let's say, a kleptomaniac, right? It starts with stealing one thing and then giving into that again. It's, that's kind of temporal punishment. We incline ourselves to sin by actually sinning. Saints also understood that one venial sin done with partial consent was enough for a soul to lose heaven entirely without God's grace from baptism. So they understood just how great God's mercy was towards them, just how much God looked with them, looked at them with love. Their penances were there to detach them from their own lives and show God their love for him alone. Since part of asceticism is a person letting go of their own pride, they need to be on guard against letting their practices be for show. One of St. Philip Neri's parishioners wanted to wear a hair shirt as a penance to make him more uncomfortable. But St. Philip didn't think he was ready, so he gave permission for him to wear the hair shirt, except on the outside of his normal clothes. This would mean that everyone would see him and what he was doing, and he would just look ridiculous, right? Uh, Neri was guarding this young man against pride by not allowing him to undertake too harsh of a penance too soon. Yet he also gave the young man a second lesson, that penances should be done with humility, and they become absurd when they're done for others to see. As a matter of fact, mortification, mortification is done to be seen, lose their effect as a hair shirt 
does when it can't touch the skin. They stop doing good for your soul and actually become detrimental to, to your, your spiritual life. The purpose of asceticism is to apply the science of theology to the practice of personal sanctification, making this knowledge and its practice the basis for a person's salvation. That means you need to find what God is calling you to do and not what God is calling someone else to do. You cannot compare yourself with others in the strict sense. You can look to the saints, but you're not to copy them exactly as you were, as they were. You're to actually emulate them. For to copy St. Clair would be impossible unless you were actually her alive in that time uh, and to do the exact same things that she did. You have to let the saints teach you what they learned and then see how you can apply that teaching to your own lives. How can you live like St. Clair uh, without living, without being a, a copy of her? You must also realize that learning how to live the ascetical life is a process. God will not call you to do the hardest thing first. If you do, you can burn yourself out from giving too much of yourself too early into loving holy things. Or perhaps more specifically, you can rust out since your actions lack the steeled foundation of Jesus Christ from which they should all spring. The best ascetical practices for the individual are those disciplines which most successfully advance their personal spiritual advancement. If it works, do it. For God does not call all of us to practice the same charity. He doesn't call us all to the same actions. Generally, he does, right? Corporal works of mercy, spiritual works of mercy. But for each individual soul, those are going to look a little different how the person lives them out. The point, uh, that's the point of being different members of the body of Christ, that we're all united, but we all have different functions within the whole, as the eye does not do the same function as a hand or as a leg or as a foot. It's fine to begin with externals as long as they don't damage the individual, right? You kind of start doing the right thing if you want to change uh, the way, the, if you want to change your whole actions uh, to be a complete uh, shift towards the Lord. Um, they can, externals can be a way to change your heart to begin to, to conform to Christ. They can tune you into something that should be happening. So even if you don't fully understand fasting, it can still be a good thing for you to start to do because you know that kind of the whole point is to become holier, right? And that can start you off uh, and God can open up more knowledge to you. He can open up more of your intellect to see, uh, to see the goodness of fasting or the goodness of what he's calling you to do. The issue is when an individual remains at the external level and never internalizes what they do. I think for cradle Catholics during Lent, there are many good practices and fasts that people undertake, but many times they get caught up in that external practice and they lose what should be their end, which is Jesus Christ. You know, they, they want to kind of white knuckle it. Even if a mortification isn't working for them, they're going to say, I want, I'm going to do this for 40 days, even if they're turning into Oscar the Grouch and they're just really not themselves. Then Lent becomes just another time of the year marked by giving up candy or comparing uh, what you're doing to someone else. They want to try to find where they rank, uh, which once again, it's, uh, it's very detrimental to the soul to do those things. Everyone has to live out sanctity as God is calling them to live out sanctity. Recently, I read what little has been written about the life of St. Christopher. He's an old saint, dates back to the second century of the church. He lived in Asia Minor. And he lived the life of a hermit, except St. Christopher is unusual because he lacked all the gifts that usually marked a good Christian. 
such as those of prayer, fasting, preaching, giving the good news to others around him. The gifts that he did have was that he was a man of extraordinary size and strength. So he wanted to find a way that he could use the gifts that God gave him and return some of that love to the Lord. After thinking about it, St. Christopher figured out what he was going to do. So he decided to live next to a certain stream, which was notorious for sweeping travelers away when they were fording it. And Christopher uh, decided that he was going to become a human fairy and carry people across since the stream gave him no issue at all. Once again, very big man, very physically fit. That was the way he was going to serve the Lord and show God that he loved him. And it seemed like the only way that he could show up since he wasn't good at, at all these other things in life. So he was very happy to be able to do something for God. One day, a little child appeared and wished to cross the stream. St. Christopher took him in his great arms and placed him on his shoulders. And when he began crossing the stream, each step, the child became heavier and heavier. And this little child ended up weighing more than any person that he had ever carried. And upon reaching the other side, you know, out of breath uh, and, and kind of keeled over, uh, St. Christopher looks at the child and, and the child revealed himself as the child Jesus. And St. Christopher said that he felt like he was carrying the world. And Jesus, you know, showed him his hands and what he was carrying. And that Jesus was carrying the world in his hands. He was holding a globe of the earth. And that the saint shared that burden with him for that short journey. Think of uh, our, our sufferings, right? When we, when we suffer with the Lord, we're sort of carrying his cross with him. Or Jesus is helping us carry ours. And St. Christopher wasn't quite sure about this. But to prove this was true... Jesus ordered him to go back across the river and to plant his staff, uh, the staff that he had used for years. And when St. Christopher did, the staff, the staff went into full bloom. Uh, that miracle brought about the conversion of many in those parts, and the emperor even became aware of it. But he didn't like it, so he had the saints, uh, saint arrested, tortured, and then eventually martyred. Look at the labor that St. Christopher chose, one that would not cause him harm, one that would deliver others from danger, God blessed the saint, even though his way was different from the common practices of almost every other Christian. Yet how Christopher fulfilled the ideal of the ascetical life was that he did everything for Christ, even though it wasn't all that much that he could do. He did it for the Lord. He found what God was calling him to do, and then he put that into practice. Because St. Christopher, once again, he didn't sit back. It wasn't quietism. He went looking, how can I serve the Lord? How can I suffer a little bit more? for Jesus who suffered for me. He chose to love God in the only way that he was able to. We would do well to seek out ways we can show our love for the Lord. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving, those are the best. But some souls are also called to discipline their bodies as well. The journey usually starts off as being passive. God gives us sufferings in life. We don't have to ask for them, they're just there. Yet as you advance, as you begin to deal with suffering well and accept them from the Lord willingly, you begin to seek them out, and then you look for opportunities to practice them yourselves. And when you advance even more, you begin to take them on yourself, since love compels you to no longer wait for the Lord, but to initiate steps to be more like Christ. The ascetical life is all about Christ. For Christ is not only the visible ideal of holiness and the norm of perfection. He is the inner principle of this same holiness and perfection, on the strength of our mystical incorporation into him as his mystical body. Jesus is the one that draws us into himself. In the Holy Eucharist, 
we become even greater a part of his mystical body and more conformed to our head. We need to accept Christ's teachings and follow in his footsteps. Christian perfection is the development and consummation of the mystical, vital union with Christ, leading to, con to the conformity with him and to the inner spiritual state described by St. Paul when he said, I live now not I, but Christ liveth in me. Think about how you can live more like Christ. Ask God what his will is for you in your life and what mortifications and sufferings would please him the most. And remember not to run away from trials and sufferings in this life because to run away from them is to run away from the cross. It's to run away from Jesus and our Lord himself. But to accept these trials, uh, and when you do accept these trials, you accept Jesus, and he will help you carry your cross to Calvary and then on to eternal glory. Uh, may, may God bless you all, and we have time for some questions. Father, I think we as human flawed humans, what we do is even when we have sufferings that come into our life and we say we offer them to God, mm -hmm. we um, complain about it. <laughs> which undo which undoes yes, all yes, the good, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we un we undo the gain that we get sometimes because okay, mm -hmm. yes, we're enduring it, but we're complaining while we're enduring it. So that Yeah, one step forward, two steps back. Yes. Yeah. And it's difficult. That's part of figuring out yourself is self knowledge, right, is always a huge factor with suffering and mortification. You have to know who you are, you have to know your limits, you have to know what you can handle, you have to know those sort of pitfalls, right? Uh, that, that you always fall into and try to try to stop yourself, stop the cycle, get out of it, do, do something other than complain. Um, or, you know, every time you want to complain, say, no, I'm going to say, praise be Jesus Christ. And, you know, it might sound weird in conversation, but you've avoided sinning and you've kept sort of the, uh, right, the, the merit that you've gained by suffering well. So, yeah, self-knowledge self is, is always key with these things, for sure. It will give them less time in purgatory if they come here to the house and help me with the windows and cleaning and all that. They never take me up on the offer. And I really feel that they are passing up a good opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's things like that too, right? You know, you don't want to help your neighbor, but, uh, but you offer it up, even if your neighbor doesn't really need help, right? You still offer. I'm not commenting on you, but... Um, <laughs> but still that willingness to give of yourself it can open you up to that willingness to accept God's love at some other point in your life well Teresa did Teresa did come over and help me clean so she she has gotten days off from yeah. and you're helping her grow in humility because you just That's mentioned right. her name yeah. right. the Lord be with you Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.